It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey now, we're heading into the weekend. That's good. There's some good news on another COVID vaccine. That's good. Media Buzz is going to have a great show on Sunday. That's good. And John Stewart is on Twitter. Twitter's been around, I guess, about 14 years. John Stewart, the former host of The Daily Show, has never uh, seen to grace that site with his presence. But he had something he wanted to say. has to do with this continuing drama on Wall Street over Robin Hood and all of these uh, people on Reddit who were uh, trying to buy up stocks, particularly GameStop. And it's just been a total roller coaster ride. And look, let's face it, Wall Street is a casino. And other people want in on the casino. So now, you know, the uh, the barons of Wall Street are taking steps to limit uh, this kind of, you can call it stock manipulation, or you could just call it playing the game. Nothing illegal about it. And now there's a sort of a backlash to the backlash saying, well, the elites get to, um, you know, uh, play, uh, exploit all the loopholes and play all the games in order to maximize their profits. When ordinary people try to do it, uh, not so much. So uh, now that uh, some of these sites like TD Ameritrade and Robinhood are restricting customers from buying shares of these companies like GameStop, John Stewart weighs in. This is bull. Spells it out. Uh, the Redditors aren't cheating. They're joining a party Wall Street insiders have been enjoying for years. Don't shut them down. Maybe sue them for copyright infringement instead. We've learned nothing from 2008. Uh, he got a lot of reaction from other people, and he came back and said, Thanks for the warm welcome. I promise to only use this app in a sporadic and ineffective manner. Uh, sad news about Cicely Tyson, the award-winning actress, passing away at the age of 96. Uh, she has won so many honors for all the remarkable roles that she has played over the decades. I was struck by this paragraph from Times Obit. Uh, in a remarkable career, uh, she broke ground for serious black actors by refusing to take parts that demean black people. She urged black colleagues to do the same often went without work. She was critical of films and television programs that cast black characters as criminal, servile, or immoral and insisted that African Americans, even if poor or downtrodden, should be portrayed with dignity. Well, good for Cicely Tyson. Um, If you're wondering about the difference between the way President Biden's being covered versus the way President Trump was covered, um, I've been, I've been, I've had this in my notes for a few days. John Howard, I've talked about before, Uh, one-time Wall Street Journal reporter who is now the White House correspondent or a White House correspondent for CNN. This is what he posted on Twitter comparing Trump to Biden. So according to Harwood, Trump stands for lies, ignorance, immorality, cruelty, and corruption. Biden stands for truth, knowledge, decency, empathy, public service. Now, does that sound to you like uh, a reporter who is going to take the same approach to the 46th president as he did to the 45th president? Just wanted to get that on the record. Well, we got a lot of stuff to cover here. Let's start with story number one. And it has to do with the extraordinarily poisonous relationships now between Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill. I've been doing this a long time. You know, partisan rancor, partisan sniping. uh, It's become par for the course. I don't even blink an eye at this stuff. You know, they take shots at each other, sometimes even within their own party. This is something very different. And, of course, it grows out of the awful, horrible, deadly siege at the Capitol just over 
three weeks ago. Uh, and here's a Washington Post write-up, which I believe captures a lot of the emotion and intensity. And it's so personal and it's so visceral. This is not like you suck because you don't support the tax cut or you suck because you think there should be an impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Open hostility broke out among R's and D's in Congress amid growing fears of physical violence and looming domestic terrorism threats from supporters of former President Donald Trump, with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi leveling an extraordinary allegation, this is not hype, folks, that dangers lurk among the membership itself. Here's the quote from the House Speaker at a news conference yesterday. The enemy is within the House of Representatives a threat that members are concerned about in addition to what is happening outside. Think about that language. The enemy is within the House. This is the Speaker of the House, 80-year-old Nancy Pelosi, been around politics forever. And she's saying, some of us are fearing for our safety, essentially she's saying because of Republicans. So in the meantime, her counterpart on the GOP side, Kevin McCarthy, went down to Mar-a-Lago, met with Donald Trump. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with that, except this is the same Kevin McCarthy who a couple weeks ago said President Trump does bear responsibility for the violence at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Trump and McCarthy put out a statement vowing to work together to take back the House. All right, that's politics as usual. But obviously McCarthy's trying to reposition himself as a Trump supporter. Maybe he had to do a little groveling down there. I don't know. That's sheer speculation. Also yesterday, Republican Congressman Matt Gates, a big-time Trump supporter, went to Wyoming so that he could hold a rally denouncing Liz Cheney, the number three House Republicans. He's going against a member of his own leadership because, of course, she was one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump um, earlier this month. Now, Back to the, 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 the vitriolic atmosphere on the Hill, although those are two prime examples. Some Democrats are expressing fears, says the Post story, that Republican lawmakers, who in some cases have tried bringing weapons onto the House floor, cannot be trusted. Some have bought bulletproof vests and are seeking other protections. And then this gets back to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, more and more stuff keeps coming out about her. She's the freshman Republican member of Congress who on her Facebook page, she says, oh, other people might have written this, but she didn't distance, she didn't denounce, um, endorsed the idea, like comments saying, a Democrat should be executed. A bullet should be put in Nancy Pelosi's head. Uh, Maybe Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton should be hung. FBI agents should be executed because they're part of the deep state. And other videos, including her going after um, one of the survivors of the Parkland High School shooting, in Florida when he came to the Capitol, David Hogg, and you see her walking behind him saying he's a coward and talking to him, trying to taunt him. And then the, the, the GOP puts her on the Education Committee. And that, of course, uh, had special resonance for her critics on the Democratic side. Um, it's absolutely appalling, says Nancy Pelosi, assigning her to the Education Committee when she has mocked the killing of little children at school. What could they be thinking or is thinking too generous a word for what they might be doing? Green responded in a statement saying Democrats and their spokesmen in the fake news media will stop at nothing to defeat conservative Republicans. They are coming after me because I'm a threat to their goal of socialism. They are coming after me because they know I represent the people, not the politicians. 
Now, what is Kevin McCarthy's reaction to all this? He had a spokesman describe Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments as deeply disturbing. Okay, if you're the House Minority Leader and you want to send a message that this kind of language, this kind of conduct, these kind of Facebook posts are unacceptable, you do it yourself. You don't have your flack go out and say, oh, this is very concerning, and he's going to talk to her. Meanwhile, uh, the vitriol continues between two other members, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz. So obviously, I think that they've gone at it before. You have the very conservative Senator Cruz from Texas. You have the very liberal AOC from New York City. Um, what happened is Cruz inadvertently started this by actually posting a, a supportive tweet by saying, fully agree. This has to do, again, as I mentioned in an earlier part of the podcast, with the Wall Street uproar, the stock market gyrations, uh, and whether all this should be allowed, the people on Reddit you know, pushing up the price of those stocks, which, by the way, uh, I think it was GameStop went up, you know, the market cap, I recall, went up from $2 billion to $20 billion, but then the stock plummeted the next day, and now it's bouncing around. Same thing for some of these other stocks that the Reddit people like. So how did AOC respond to Ted Cruz when she posted that we need to look into this, saying fully agree? Here's AOC. I am happy to work with Republicans on this issue where there's common ground. But you, Ted, almost had me murdered three weeks ago, so you can sit this one out. Happy to work with almost any other GOP that aren't trying to get me killed. So, what is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying? She's personally blaming Ted Cruz for the violence at the Capitol. And remember, she said on Instagram that she hasn't discussed the details, but she had to go and hide in a different room than others were being sheltered because she didn't trust the Republicans, and she had some kind of close call. So I understand her being very emotional. What Cruz did, you could certainly blast politically. He was one of the leaders, along with Josh Hawley, of the Senate effort um, to not accept the results of the Electoral College, to say the election was stolen, to say we're not going to certify Joe Biden's victory, that President Trump actually won. Okay, I have my feelings about that, which I've expressed. And 136 Republican House members uh, also refused to accept the Electoral College results. And in the minds of people who lived through January 6th on Capitol Hill, what they did was to, ins- they themselves incited the narrative and incited Trump supporters who got plenty of encouragement from Donald Trump himself um, to go march to the Capitol, storm the Capitol, and that resulted in five deaths. Now, is there a direct line between what Ted Cruz did politically and those five deaths? Did Ted Cruz want people killed? I don't think so. I don't think most people think so. I'm not completely defending what Cruz did. He did push uh, what turns out to have been uh, BS. The lying accusations, unproven in any court, unproven by the Justice Department, by the Trump Justice Department of widespread electoral fraud. That would otherwise, why would you say we're not going to accept? It's usually so routine. Every four years, yes, there's a few token protests and Democrats have done this. But they've done it in cases where Hillary Clinton and John Kerry conceded defeat right away to their Republican opponents, George W. Bush and, of course, Donald Trump. Uh, so they perpetuated this, and then it led to violence. And this, of course, is the question, and it will be the question that we debated at the Trump Senate impeachment trial, which is not only did the former president incite violence by pushing, well, of course, he did other things by speaking at the rally and saying, let's go march down Pennsylvania Avenue, I'll join you. He didn't. Uh, but did the Senate 
Republican and House Republican supporters of the let's not accept Joe Biden as the president-elect, were they also somehow inciting violence? That is the question uh, that drew such a vociferous response from AOC, which totally leads me into story number two, and that is the Senate impeachment trial. And I want to read a column in National Review by Kevin McCarthy. Now, Kevin McCarthy, if you've followed him, is a conservative uh, former law enforcement official, um, who former prosecutor, who for four years basically supported Donald Trump, but broke with Trump quite dramatically over the stolen election BS. And when you have Kevin McCarthy, not to mention you know Mitch McConnell and others who say this is just not true, and Biden won the election legitimately, that says a lot. Now, Kevin McCarthy has also said that he believes that Trump didn't commit impeachable offenses, but he, he sees the Senate trial as kind of a waste of time. But here's his take, and it was a new wrinkle for me. Uh, well, first he says, look, it's politics, folks. Quote, it's impossible to believe that all or even most of the 45, that's the 45 Republican senators, who joined the Rand Paul objection would see it the same way if a former Democratic president were in the dock and saying, yeah, no need to a trial, nothing to see here, let's move on. Or for that matter, that Democratic senators, he writes, would not grab onto any plausible theory, and even some implausible ones, that would spare a Democratic former president. So he's saying, look, this is partisan politics. Republicans are trying to signal that Democrats should just drop the whole thing, the votes are not there, ergo it's a waste of time. All it will do is raise Trump's profile, they believe, give him a platform to air his grievances, and launch his political revival. Who wants that? The Democrats want that. So this is interesting. So what McCarthy's saying is, look, the Dems know they're going to lose. They're going to get clobbered. They're not even going to come close to the required two-thirds majority to impeach, uh, to convict on impeachment charges, former president, now private citizen, Donald J. Trump. But here's McCarthy's reasoning. Despite President Biden's pretensions about bringing our nation together, Democrats want to impeach Trump because it will be divisive, not despite its divisiveness. They are banking on his being acquitted and politically revived, not underestimating that possibility. They want him to run for office again, not banish him. Because the assumption was, well, I know some in the GOP, including McConnell, would probably prefer that Donald Trump not be a presidential candidate in 2024. So McCarthy goes on, yes, the former president's impeachment trial will be divisive for the country, but not in the way that troubles the Democrats. Rather, it will unite the left while intensifying the right's internecine conflict. And this, I think, touches on a pretty salient point. Democrats don't delude themselves, uh, a little bit more from this McCarthy piece, into believing Trump will be convicted and disqualified from future office. To the controversy, they want him to remain a force, wreaking havoc on the 2022 GOP midterm elections and the 24 campaign, splitting the party, forcing the nomination of Trump populists with narrow appeal who cannot win general elections, and that Trump himself will either get nominated or mount an independent run. Doesn't look like he's going to do that. Now he's dropped the Patriot Party talk. That will increase the chances the Democrats hold the White House. And it is true. Donald Trump as a political force, and I believe he will remain a political force. He's by far and away the most popular person in the Republican Party, and still has vast support, even after the events of January 6th, among the Republican rank and file. But he does divide the party. There's sort of the Liz Cheney wing, who felt he should have been impeached and convicted. And there's the Trump loyalist wing, which you would call the Lindsey Graham wing, um, any of the most vociferous supporters, you know, pick a name, the Matt Gates wing, the Kevin McCarthy wing. And so Trump as a political force 
makes it more likely that the GOP is divided heading into 2022 and 2024, more likely that Trump populists who would be extraordinary popular with the party, would probably be endorsed by the former president, will win Republican nominations in district after district, but more likely than more mainstream Republicans to lose to Democratic challengers, Democratic incumbents in those midterm elections. So, basically, McCarthy's saying that Democrats are crazy like a fox for wanting to push this impeachment trial, get all the saturation television coverage, and force Republican senators to vote one way or the other. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number three. You know, I've had occasion to talk about this New York Times reporter in the past. His name is Don McNeil. He is the top coronavirus reporter for the New York Times. Uh, he's a health and medical reporter who's been doing this for many decades. And um, I talked about him some months ago because he gave an interview to CNN. Remember, this guy is not a columnist, not a commentator. He's a straight healthcare reporter. He gave us uh, an interview on CNN uh, in which the guy covering the pandemic said that Robert Redfield, then the head of the CDC, should quit because he's incompetent. I've never heard of a beat reporter doing that. And obviously it colors everything he says, but he didn't stop there. Don McNeil said on CNN, the real cover-up was carried out by President Trump who kept saying the virus is going to go away. It's nothing. This is not somebody whose grasp of the science is even third grade level. Now, it's fine for a health reporter in a news analysis piece to say Trump was wrong in saying the virus would go away. It'll be gone by spring. It'll be gone by summer. Uh, It will magically disappear. Third grade level. He's insulting the president of the United States. Again, he's a beat reporter. Well, now he's in trouble of a very different sort. Uh, This was a scoop by the Daily Beast and acknowledged today, to its credit, by the New York Times. The Daily Beast reported that Don McNeil Jr. used a racial slur on a student trip to Peru last year that was sponsored by the New York Times. I guess the New York Times arranges for students to go with a reporter and learn, have a learning experience in places like Peru. So the Times now acknowledges that it investigated complaints from students on the trip about the alleged racial slurs and says it disciplined Don McNeil for inappropriate language and has apologized to the students. Now, the Times won't say what the discipline is. Was he suspended? Was he fined? Did he get a slap on the wrist? Not going to tell us. But this is pretty egregious stuff. Here's the quote from the Times statement. We found he had used bad judgment by repeating a racist slur in the context of a conversation about racist language. And the racist slur was the N-word. Um... So editor Dean Baquet, he's the executive editor, he um, was interviewed by his own paper. He says, look, when I first learned about this, I was outraged and I expected to fire the reporter. But I concluded that his intent was not hateful or malicious and I believe he should be given another chance. But you look at the emails obtained by the Daily Beast in which some of the um, students on the trip complained about McNeil's conduct. Uh, One of them said he was a racist. He used the N-word, said horrible things about black teenagers, and said white supremacy doesn't exist. Not exactly uh, covering the New York Times in glory uh, for Don McNeil to act this way. I don't know what the discipline was. I credit the Times for investigating and taking some action, and I credit Team Baquet for candor in discussing it. And I'm not one who says, oh, this person should be fired or that person should be fired. 
you know, you got to consider a person's whole career. But this was freaking outrageous. And to do this with a bunch of young kids and say negative things about black teenagers if these complaints are true, and I don't see any reason why these students or their parents would lie, is an embarrassment to the New York Times. There's just no other way to put it. All right, story number four, let's get to COVID-19. And let's start with what's happening in New York. Because as you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo became kind of a folk hero on the left. He did these daily briefings, which were very good, very blunt, very informative about what was going on in his state, and particularly New York City, which was the original epicenter of the coronavirus. And, you know, a lot of people contrasted that with Donald Trump, who would always, especially in the beginning, sort of minimize it. Then there were the briefings with uh, the medical experts, which Trump often found himself in a position, or I should say Anthony Fauci and Deborah Birx and others often found themselves in a position of contradicting Donald Trump. He was the star. They were the supporting cast. Very different from what we have now. We'll get into that in a moment. Anyway, um, I'm sure Andrew Cuomo did his best, but the Democratic governor has never been able to fully explain certain actions he took having to do with the nursing homes in New York State, where there were a whole lot of casualties. And a lot of critics of Cuomo believe that he had been lionized. He wrote a book about his about leadership, about his handling of the COVID-19 crisis. So now, yesterday, 10 months after the pandemic began, turns out New York State had not until yesterday reported an accurate count of the thousands of nursing home residents who died from COVID-19. Finally, after a very critical report from the state attorney general, who's a Democrat, state officials released new numbers that showed that the total nursing home deaths from COVID-19, it actually was 43% higher than the Cuomo administration had been claiming. And repeated requests for these numbers going on for months and months and months. So here was the problem. Officially, at least, state officials reported, people who work for Cuomo reported, how many nursing home residents died of COVID-19 inside these long-term care facilities. They did not disclose how many died after being sent to hospitals. So State Attorney General Letitia James released a report that estimated nursing home deaths statewide to be 50% higher than what Cuomo's health department had reported. So obviously, if you take them out of the nursing home, they go to a hospital and they die of COVID-19, of course that should count. And the fact that it didn't count sounds to me like a political effort to minimize the casualties and perhaps minimize the criticism. So as a result, Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, uh, tweeting that Cuomo is the worst governor in America, issued a statement calling the underreporting of nursing home deaths a massive corruption and cover-up scandal. Uh, the minority leader, the Republican leader in the state Senate in Albany, Rob Ort, called for Cuomo's health commissioner to resign. Now, also, looking at the national picture, I mentioned at the top, it looks like there's now a new COVID-19 vaccine coming from Johnson & Johnson. Now, at first glance, it doesn't sound anywhere near as effective as the ones that are 95% effective. Those, of course, are Pfizer and Moderna. But there are certain advantages to this J&J vaccine, which still has to go through FDA approval. But based on the clinical trials, it was found worldwide to be 66% effective at preventing moderate and severe illness if you get the uh, COVID-19 virus. This all came out today. 
but it was stronger in the U.S. and weaker in South Africa, where there is this, this variant that looks pretty troublesome and has now showed up, at least in isolated cases, here in the U.S. of A. But if you just look at the results uh, in the United States, uh, this could really expand access to the vaccines, which, as you know, there aren't enough doses. People can't get it. People are angry. Millions of people are frustrated going on websites that don't give them appointments and all of that. But here's some of the advantages. For one thing, the J&J vaccine, if it gets approved, it would be next week. Only requires a single shot. So that you don't have to, so it can, it can reach twice as many Americans. Secondly, it doesn't have the requirement that it be stored in sub-zero temperatures. Uh, so it's a lot easier to be made available to the public. This would come by late February, early March. But there's a communications challenge, the PR problem for J&J because of the overall numbers. So if you look just in the U.S., the vaccine was 72% effective at protecting against moderate to severe illness if you get COVID-19. Well, that's better than nothing, right? Not as good as 95. Anthony Fauci was briefing today just before I sat down at the mic. He said for the Johnson & Johnson vaccination. He's very excited about it because it's cheap and doesn't require the special refrigeration. He said it's 85% effective in the U.S. against hospitalization. So look, nobody wants to get COVID-19, but if you get it and it's not that severe and you don't have to be hospitalized and you, and you don't face possible death, that's a major step forward. And apparently J&J can make just many, many, many millions of this right away. It's just easier to make. You don't, again, you don't have the uh, storage requirements, and it only requires a single dose. So it would provide a third alternative for a country that badly needs it. We'll see how that plays out. And finally, story number five. This has caught my eye because General Motors is such an iconic American company. General Motors said yesterday that by 2035, it will only be selling cars that have no emissions, meaning it will not be selling cars like most of the cars on the road today, which use internal combustion engines. So it's setting a goal, and yeah, it's a long way away, 14 years away, who knows what will happen. But for General Motors, for GM to say, it, you know, GM makes some of the biggest gas-guzzling pickup trucks and SUVs, that we are going to set our sights on only having electric cars or cars that are somehow powered by anything other than gasoline. Huge for pollution. Could put pressure on other automakers around the world, uh, could have an impact on President Biden's policies. Um, and obviously, this is like a bombshell for the auto industry because uh, of General Motors' huge cloud as a major American car maker. GM employs about 1 million people in the United States of America, more than any other manufacturing sector by far. So it also means that a lot of people could lose their jobs because electric cars require fewer workers. You don't have to make the engines. You don't have to do a lot of other things. Uh, what about all the people who run gas stations? And obviously, there'd have to be a lot more electric refueling stations to make this even viable. But I must say, you know, I guess it's been some years ago since Toyota, I believe, was one of the first to put out an electric hybrid car. And, you know, it was the cool thing to do among liberals, go out and, you know, I'm protecting the environment. I'm getting a car that only runs on electricity or is a mixture of gasoline and electricity. And then more and more um, companies, most notably Tesla, which now has this huge market cap, didn't make that much money last year, but man, it's worth more than any other American car company, um, to get into the electric car market. 
But a reality check for all the hype and publicity that this gets, um, the total sales in the industry of electric cars are only 3%. So the rest of us are driving cars that require gasoline and that, by definition, pollute the environment. It'll obviously be a long time before this goal is realized, but it looks like this is where it's heading. And it's just so striking to me. I mean, cars have been in use using gasoline, you know, since Henry Ford, since the early 1900s, more than well over a century later, they're going to be phased out. It's only a question of when, and that will be good news for the environment. It may not be good news for many people in the auto industry, but, you know, hopefully as we go to other clean energy sources, other jobs will spring up, not just in the making cars, uh, to replace the ones that have been lost. Well, I hope you have a great weekend coming up. I'm glad we have some finally additional good news on the vaccine front, especially for those of you who are trying to get this vaccine, and it is so frustrating. And it's going to be at least a couple of weeks before the Biden administration can get more out. And there just aren't enough doses. That's the reality. Also, hope you'll get a chance to watch Media Buzz, 11 a.m. Sunday on the Fox News channel. Um, this is always a time when I um, tell you to subscribe. You can get it on Amazon Music or Spotify, not to mention Apple iTunes and some of the other places on your Amazon device. We will see you back here Monday with more BuzzFeed. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.